Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode on the Product-Led Podcast. Today, we have a very awesome episode, and I had the pleasure of meeting Sajay at Saster, where he was leading this awesome talk about you know, how to scale self-serve enterprise sales at Cloudinary, where they've scaled up and beyond over $100 million annual recurring revenue. So it's a really awesome product-led success story. And so we're going to go behind the scenes of actually what happened, what are some of the things that they did to really build this juggernaut and really scale up to this level. So Sanjay, welcome to the Product-Led Podcast. Thanks, Russ. Glad to be here. Awesome. So as far as your background, I know like right now you're you're basically doing two things. You're you're running the self-serve side of the business. You're also doing kind of developer experience and really making sure that all kind of fits together. And so wanna just start off with at the very beginning of Cloudinary, like what was kind of the main primary go-to market motion that the company was founded on? Sure. There are three founders, and the three founders actually prior to Cloudinary had their own consulting business where they were building applications for clients, uh, typically startups. And what they realized as they were building various applications for their clients is that they were constantly editing, cropping, manually managing uh, images and videos. And so one of the founders said, this is a very time-consuming process as we build image assets and video assets into these applications, maybe we can automate this. And so they sort of spent some time thinking about it. And basically what they wanted to do was build a SaaS service that appealed to them as developers. So think of it as a service built by developers for developers. And they said, what would we want as developers to see in such a service? And they said, okay, and they defined their requirements. And so it always was built as a PLG type service first. Uh, it was built as a way to get developers trying the product, using the product. And hey, if you really like it and it really solves a problem, then great. At some point, you'll pay for it. That was the origin story behind it. And uh, what they found is that their own intuition paid off because they realized hundreds of thousands of developers today really want an automated way of managing images and videos. Okay, awesome. So that was kind of the, the beginning of the journey. They decided, okay, it's going to be like PLG kind of first, build for more developers, which I think we all know the PLG space. Developers are always like a lot more product-led first. Correct. <laughs> so like, I really don't want to talk to sales. They certainly don't want to talk. Yeah, exactly. There was no talking to sales <laughs> early on in, in our in our history. Yeah, pretty common, but that's fine. I mean, a lot of other people are going to move in that direction. And then when it comes to the kind of like next years, like what has that like product-led kind of motion evolved over time? So it started like super self-serve, built for developers. What were some of the next kind of iterations as far as like it scaled up? What did the go-to-market motion look like for the first million to like the first 10 million? Did it change at all between that kind of range? I think for the first 10 million, there was maybe a slight evolution. There was a huge amount of self-service still built in, I think. From a go-to-market perspective, they focused very heavily on technical content, right? So what will a developer want to read about? And so it was both a combination of SEO-driven content as well as engagement with developers who are influencers and, and who knew their stuff. And so the combination of the two really drove the first few million in the business. And then two things started to happen. First, the original set of users and customers started to grow up. They, they scaled as businesses and they needed more and more. And 
And so that naturally led to interest in capacity beyond what we offered in self-service. And then we would get inbound inquiries via our website from large companies that said, hey, I'm interested, even if it was a small project, hey, I'm interested in doing XYZ, but I don't see a price plan that meets our needs. Uh, Can we check? And so in a lot of ways, the success of the self-service business led to us thinking about what it meant to grow into an enterprise go-to-market motion as well. Okay. So you had that uh, at the very beginning, like SEO-driven content, and then there was just the kind of like remotion people could sign up for, test it out. How important do you feel like that SEO-driven kind of content was at the very beginning? Because like I know there's a lot of like product companies out there, but the ones where I see truly succeeding, like they have a very strong kind of marketing engine as well. It's not just like, we got this free thing, but they really have that. So I'm curious, like as far as the early success of this, do you feel like it was largely because of that SEO driven content, like kind of build that awareness or is there other kind of like things that were going into play that really added to that? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. Certainly SEO content was important, but I would argue that it wasn't just marketing driven SEO content. For example, a huge driver even today of SEO is our documentation website. It, it was built early on by uh, one of the founders and it was very technical and there were a lot of how-tos and examples and code snippets. And so if you're a developer and you're searching, how do I do X into images and videos, oftentimes you'd land on the documentation page, one of the documentation pages. And it was credible because it wasn't a quote-unquote marketing fluff piece. It was actually a how-to and that was a huge part of the driver. So SEO is certainly important, but slightly different than maybe pure marketing-driven SEO, if you will. Yeah, like punch out another 100 blog posts this month, will you? Yeah, I mean, we still did a lot of blog posts, but again, they were technical. They were, you know, sort of talking through how do I do X, Y, Z. I think the other part that's uh, always remained very important to us has been word of mouth. If something works for a developer, they'll talk about it with other developers. And we've measured it over the years, and we find that it's consistently between 18 to 20% of our registrations come from somebody that's heard about it through a friend or colleague, not because they themselves did a search or they saw us at a conference. So uh, I think those two things, SEO and over time, word of mouth started to really build out, helped us scale. Okay. So your initial kind of channel was like SEO driven content. And then what were the other channels that like, because you've been with the company for like seven years now, I'm curious, like how is the marketing side of this evolved from like 1 million, 10 million, to maybe around like 30 million, we'll go there. So we certainly invested in a few different ways, right? So we've built out a developer relations team as well. So engaging with developers in various communities. One of the things we focused on is what ecosystems of developers should we focus on and why? So we tried to showcase Cloudinary in the context of an application that a developer would build versus just Cloudinary standalone. Because when developers build applications, oftentimes what they're doing is they're picking a language or an ecosystem first, right? I'm a Java developer, I'm going to build a Java app, or I'm a Angular developer, I'm going to build an Angular app. And so the ability to showcase Cloudinary in the developer's context through the work that our developer relations team did was very important. And so I think as we've matured and evolved, building content around those ecosystems became increasingly important. I think the other part that 
has become important is thinking about use cases and talk about technology ecosystems. And then we had use cases and we started to focus on, especially as for those customers that were maybe slightly larger, we started to think about use cases in e-commerce, use cases in travel and hospitality, use cases in media and entertainment, some of the verticals that are naturally image and video heavy uh, and rely on media to drive engagement became ways in which we focused our outbound efforts in terms of engaging you know, where developers, even if you, whether you're an SMB or in a large enterprise, we focused our efforts around those use cases and those verticals. So that paid off for us as well. That makes a ton of sense. Okay. So when it comes to the overall kind of like self-serve motion, you, you kind of alluded to from like one to kind of 10 mil is like it was self-serve from kind of like the initial part. And then there was like some customers, they started growing. Okay, we need these extra kind of like features. We need extra maybe support on the enterprise side. And then there was just some people kind of reaching out. It's like, okay, we need some extra help or that pricing doesn't quite work for us. So those are kind of like the the pivot points uh, for that where you explored some more of those enterprise options. Now, was that kind of like what it was all about, like to 10 mil, or was there kind of like a more kind of methodical approach to get to the first 10 mil? No, I think that was probably pretty accurate through the first 10, 10, 12 million. And then we started to build out, hey, what does an enterprise sales motion look like, right? With account executives, sales development reps, SEs, et cetera. And as those team members scaled uh, or closed larger deals, we got enough data and information about what worked and what didn't work. And so that's how we started scaling that side of the business as well. And remember, I think one of the things that's unique about Cloudinary is we've always been a company that's been funded by our own customers. So we've never had to rely on outside funding. And so there's always been a model in place that says, okay, we know there's not 80 million in the bank that we can just draw on and we're going to run at a deficit right? That's never been the case. We've always been a company that says, hey, we can create value, organic value directly and still be profitable. What does that look like? And so we've we're always been a little bit what I call leaner than the average, probably venture capital funded company. And it's we just got lucky that way, <laughs> very likely. And we got lucky that way, but it's also informed how we operate. So we know how to when to invest in scaling different go-to-market motions, and we've built out models that help us understand the value of the initiatives we build in. Yeah. And I remember in your talk, you had that 300K kind of like average revenue per user, which was like, okay, if we don't have that, we don't hire them uh, in that kind of stage, which I think that's a really great forcing function of have something like concrete like that of like, okay, where where do we stand on this? And that creates that rates kind of scalable company. And it's a nice forcing function. But when do you feel like is the right time to introduce more of that like enterprise sales motion on top of your product-led motion? Because I know in the pre like 10 mil kind of range, it was more ad hoc, like it came up as needed. But then there, I'm sure there was like some line in the sand of like, hey, this is working. Let's take this a bit more seriously. Let's maybe develop a team around this, hire a great leader around this. Where do you feel like that kind of line in the sand is, whereas like this makes a lot of sense to kind of scale up. I think for us, it was a function of also seeing a lot of that inbound interest and 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 and, and seeing success with those initial deals and knowing that people were willing to pay for the value of what we had. And it was always belief, I think, that this was not just a self-serve motion type of company. We, we believe that over time we could 
build success with larger enterprises that wanted dedicated customer success, that wanted a solution architect to partner with them to build out certain integrations that may have been custom, et cetera. And so I think that belief was always there that we would need to do that, but we wanted to see initial success with the first few before we, back to our point about being disciplined around that 300 plus before seeing what it would take to build it out. And so once we had a few sort of enterprise wins under our belt, I think that was when we started to sort of build out a model for what the organization would look like. Because then you have to think about a couple of different things, right? You have to think about not just the PLG motion into self-service, but you have to think about, okay, your enterprise motion, some of it will get fed from inbound, some of it will get need to be fed from outbound, some of it will get fed by channels. When do you invest in what? Right. And so that was a work in progress, I would say, from 15 to 75 to 100 million plus is figuring out that ratio and that mix. So we're still working on that today. But I don't think you want to introduce complexity too early because in a small company, when you're a lean company and you introduce significant complexity, it just it, it stresses everybody out. So our, our belief was if we know how self-service works and we know there are certain aspects of inbound, for example, marketing that are driving enterprise, well, let's double down on that. So we started to layer on over time other aspects of enterprise marketing, but we didn't try and do everything at once because we would have failed miserably. Yeah. I, I want to like double take on that. But when it comes to simplicity, like we were just kind of, even with our own company, product led, we're like, okay, what are like the, after all the companies we helped with product led, what are like the core values and ethos that kind of comes out of like product led companies of like, number one is simplicity. And why it's like, if you think about hey, like majority of product companies make something easier. It's not that there isn't software to do it already. It's like, can we just make this a lot easier than the alternatives? And so I think like that simplicity makes a ton of sense. I, I definitely love that. And one thing you chatted about even before we started recording was the, the fact of looking at this as a continuum, not like there's these two separate go-to-market motions. Could you touch on that a bit more? Because I really love that perspective. And I think a lot of people need to hear it again, because it's just like, there is something to that where I think they think of it like completely separate go-to-market motions, but that's not the case. Correct. I think from our perspective, a couple of different ways to look at it. At a business level, if you think about the impact of self-service on the whole business, there's certainly the standalone revenue dedicated to self-service. But if you look at the percentage of enterprise clients that we have who started off paying us $99 a month or something equivalent, and you look at all the revenue that started off from self-service, that's close to 50% of our business today. Even if you take some companies that are paying us six, seven figures a year today. So we know at a business level, there's a continuum right there, right? That is self-service in some ways is a channel for enterprise, not, not necessarily surprising. And I think there has to be a mental shift that a huge part of the value add that you've built even in enterprise is product-led growth, right? Certainly, we also think that an enormous part of the value that we have is around our customer success team. Right. I think that's a, I mentioned that in the top. It's a huge driver, I think, behind some of the word of mouth. We, I think, are very generous with even people who don't pay us anything, right? With our customer support, not necessarily at the same SLA levels as somebody that pays us seven figures a year, but it's, it's, 
we make sure we try and support everybody. And But again, think of it as a continuum. You have support at the free level, you have support at somebody that just starts paying us, support all the way at the enterprise. So the lessons learned from that continuum then get spread throughout the organization, right? The support team understands some of the issues that crop up. I also think it's we learn from the enterprise side, right? So when enterprises, you know, when we're doing executive business reviews or with our champions and our users, a lot of the things we learn then get fed their way into the product team and iterate, they get iterated within the next generation of our of our platform, which is made available to the free users as well. So this continuum in terms of how product feedback and business feedback flows between these different sort of customer groups is part of the reason I, I like to think of it as a continuum versus two siloed go-to-market missions. Yeah, I love that perspective. And one thing like on that note too that I've seen a few companies, like some manage to come back to it, others don't, but it's really where you kind of over-index on one of the or the other. So I'll give you an example, like Airtable, they recently decided like, okay, we're going to like lean very much so into like our enterprise kind of sales motion. We're going to double down on this. Um, and I'm not saying they're going to like necessarily kill the, the product-led motion, but I have seen in many cases where it's like the company decides, hey, this enterprise thing, like we get six, seven-figure deals. That's like, you know, a thousand plus customers on our, our smaller plans. It just makes a lot more sense to, to kind of focus and go up market. Then they do that for a couple of years. Maybe it works. They keep growing it. And then they end up having to kind of retract. Like we missed something there. Like you mentioned, our product-led motion was actually helping us get a lot of these kind of enterprise accounts. So uh, I'm curious if there ever was a situation at Cloudinary where it was like it kind of shifted from one end to the other, or if you just kind of had this balanced approach the whole time. You know, ever since we launched the enterprise motion, we've always had the balance, right? We've tentatively said, hey, if we have a 30-70 split throughout the next X years, you know, that's a good place to be as we think about revenue. Is that like 30%? Yeah, 30% of our business of our revenue comes from self-service, 70% from enterprise, because by definition, there's always a cap on the self-service, right? They're defined plans. But the influence revenue, aka some part of that 70% will also stem from from self-service too. So we we try and stay balanced because we understand that self-service, product-like growth serves multiple drivers, right? One driver is certainly revenue. But I think the other reason why self-service and and product-like growth is so critical is for us, it is also an indicator of brand interest and brand visibility. And then the second, it's about product slash feature adoption, right? So we get so much intelligence from how users are adopting the product that gets fed into our system and what's working, what's not working. In addition to the revenue side, the fact that we get this brand equity, brand visibility, and this product adoption makes having a balanced approach, I think, critical for us. We don't want to over-rotate on one versus another. Right. Yeah, I like that perspective you mentioned of like, yeah, keeping like a balance with like the self-serve revenue, but then also thinking about like the influenced revenue. I think a lot of people, if they don't look at the full picture there, it's like, it might tell you a different story. Like, is it 50% influenced or what does that look like? That's that's awesome. And I imagine it's also pretty hard to track. <laughs> is it? <laughs> like for some companies, I know that's like, 
I don't know. But what is that influence, right? Did you find any big challenges on that end? Yeah, we have we have this great data science team that's helped us actually do a lot of that work and allowed us to really understand the impact. We had started tracking it. I had actually a few years ago had done an analysis of it. And at that point, it was interesting, but we were a lot smaller and we weren't sure if that trend would hold. But then come earlier this year, and we did the analysis again across both the number of accounts and the revenue of those accounts that just opened our eyes to just how influential self-service remains within in our portfolio. And I think an opportunity for us versus necessarily a conflict. And I think if we think of it as an opportunity versus a conflict, then then good things will happen. Okay. And then what were like your kind of like biggest mistakes you would say? Scaling this self-serve motion to like 100 million and beyond. Uh, like not many people have the opportunity to like kind of manage something like that. And I'm sure there was a lot of kind of like big mistakes along the way. Any kind of ones that like stand out to, to you as like, oh man, I wish I really avoided this one. I think at one point, for example, we tried to figure out if we wanted to be geo-specific. Like we talked about use cases and we talked about ecosystems. And one of the experiments we tried was, okay, let's go after specific geos with the idea that, hey, if we really have targeted go-to-market motions in a specific country that span both self-service and enterprise, that'd be great. And we can replicate that across different countries. But it's just a challenge if you aren't necessarily staffed to do that sort of thing, right? Because if it's outside, if it's a non-English speaking country, then you need, and we picked a non-English speaking country, you need content in that language. You need to understand how they buy at, at both levels. And I don't think we were mature enough to do a very country-specific type model at that stage of our existence. And we quickly realized it's at this stage of how big we are, much better to be horizontal and focus on ecosystems that people will find either through content or other means and not worry too much about hey, let's go after this specific geo. And and that's something that we've, at least front is certainly we've steered away from. No, that's interesting perspective. So more on like the overall communities versus like, let's think about that specific like language that, you know, just check the box. The second most popular language. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah. So it just, you know, we, for example, somebody could have said, hey, what are you doing for France versus Germany versus Spain versus... Japan, and all of a sudden you you run that matrix and you go, there's no way we have the ability to do that versus if we just say, hey, we're really interested in the JavaScript community and very specifically all these front-end frameworks that are coming out, it becomes a little easier for us to read, you know, one piece of content to reach people globally versus trying to focus on individual countries standalone, which would have strained our capacity. Yeah. And I think that really goes like hand in hand with like, what you found works best with that SEO-driven content. So just like more of the same uh, with that approach. Is there any other kind of big mistakes you feel like now, knowing what you know now, uh, you might have done a bit differently in this journey? If there's one other area, maybe thinking about how certain partnerships work, right? Where do we put our effort around technology partnerships? And I think early on, we picked partnerships where the partner was so significantly larger than us that maybe you didn't matter as much to the partner. I think in some ways where we are today than where we were maybe five, six years ago is we're probably in a better situation. Probably would have been better for us to start today. And again, I don't think it was wasted effort. It just was a lot of work that maybe could have been put elsewhere and we would have 
been better off doing that instead of working on technology partnerships where there wasn't a clear what does success for both companies look like. And I'm talking specifically at, at the self-service level. Okay, that makes sense. And I know like a lot of people listening to this, like their founders of companies that are between like seven and kind of like eight figures. But when it comes to your biggest challenges that you're facing today, when it comes to your kind of self-serve business and running it, managing it, what are the biggest challenges that you're up against today? So I think there are a few things that keep me up at night. <laughs> One is, you know, the population of developers is exploding, right? It's it's just, you know, whether you think of them as citizen developers, low-code developers, or you know, full-blown, full-stack developers, how do we engage? How do we reach them? How do we engage with them? How do we help them understand images and videos are critical? You know, we, you can automate that process. You don't have to do this manually by hand. So the reach aspect is, is something I think about. The other part is, I think we had talked about simplicity earlier in our conversation, the how easy can we make it for somebody to get started and use it? Because over time, our product has become quite sophisticated. But oftentimes, a developer will come in and go, I don't need all that sophistication. I have one simple use case for Cloudary. Can I get up and going in 10 minutes, 15 minutes? And so we're... We're always balancing between how do we enable that immediate impact? There'll always be a little bit of friction versus the depth maybe that a large enterprise customer needs in the product, but you don't necessarily have to expose that in the first 10 minutes when a developer registers and starts playing with it. So I think that balance, that innate tension between depth of product and ease of uh, initial engagement is something we're always trying to figure out, how can we be better at this? Right. Yeah, no, we've heard that a lot <laughs> at that revenue range. And even earlier too, where it's like that first seven minutes, like what do people do in that product? Do they get to value? How do you kind of orchestrate that experience to give them just what they need, not too much, not too little? And yeah, that becomes easier if you have the use cases, but without that, it's it's hard. So there's a huge amount of work done by us around that initial, okay, they've registered. Then they're on the initial console. What do they see? What does it look like? And we've re-architected that considerably over the last couple of years, even though at our scale, we said, oh, we could have just said, no, that's fine. Let's just keep going. We're, at, we're doing fine. But we realized that as we reach different communities, we needed to rethink now what that experience looked like and, and make it easier for people to engage with us. Totally. And so to recap here, I'm curious, like, if you were to go back in time when it comes to like the very beginning, seven years ago when you joined to now, like in terms of scaling this self-serve motion as where it is today, what would be the one or two things you might do differently knowing what you know now? I think we would have, pricing is always an interesting, is an always an interesting dynamic. Our price, our self-service prices for the most part haven't really changed in six years. And you could argue, hey, Developers are getting a great deal because inflation has gone up X percent over the past six years. Your prices have stayed the same. Your real price has gone down. But what that doesn't incorporate is the world has changed around us as well. So while six years ago is impossible to tell what would have occurred right now, I think having a framework of thinking about pricing every consistently and how to think about what that means, I think would have been probably good to build into a practice. And now I think we've got a great pricing team that's now really thinking through not just self-source, just the whole model of pricing across the organization, I think is is incredibly valuable. So I think that's one of the things you know, six, seven years ago, 
I think there's a lot of work put into it. I think having the discipline to think about it every year and understand the dynamics that might change pricing that we could build into our thinking and experimentation, even if it was we didn't change anything instead of waiting as long as we did, probably would be one of the things that change. Yeah, the pricing is a super interesting one. It's a product-led system we're building out right now, actually, which is like the operating model of like how you could roll out product-led growth for like any company. It's like pricing is absolutely has to be one of them because it's like any product of a company you gotta develop that expertise around it because you gotta make it like super easy and then also have the right value metrics how do you scale this up but then i love what you mentioned about having that practice as far as you know like every year or maybe it's every six months like when do we kind of review this because yeah as the market changes inflation changes you have to pay attention right and now you know as you grow you have a larger and larger install base right and that you have to engage with or migrate if you choose to do a new pricing model so i think the advice i'd give myself is hey just constantly pay attention to how we should be thinking about it even if you don't change it at least you've done the evaluations it's still valid today and if so, great. If not, why not? Totally. And I'm curious, like over the years as well, how have you learned to be a leader, to lead this self-serve business uh, to where it is today? Because like there's not a whole lot of resources out there. It's kind of the scale of self-serve business, at especially your scale as well. So I'm curious, like what were some of the things, maybe it's resources, maybe it's events, network things you did, but what did you find kind of the most impactful to really level up as a leader? in this area? I just, I talk to a lot of my peers, a lot of people who run other self-serve businesses. I remember when just talking to people is a huge learning experience for me. And I'm constantly trying to find content that people that can help shape my thinking around it. I think talking to developers directly, like I'll reach out, I'll, I'll write, Hey, John Doe, Hey, Jane Doe, I'd love to get 10 minutes of your time about your experience with Cloudinary, XYZ. And man, do I learn a ton, even if it's just ad hoc reach outs. But just having those real time conversations, you know, you have to be careful not to have three conversations influence a multi hundred dollar million business. But if you hear patterns, and I'm a big believer in patterns, if, if you hear, if you have 10 conversations and there are two or three patterns that emerge from them, then it gives you the ability to poke at that particular pattern and go, hey, is this something that we should be digging into and get whichever team's responsible to to dig into it a little further, I think is incredibly valuable. So I learn a lot from just talking to our developers, even if it's, even if they're just, they're not necessarily thinking PLG, all they care about is solving a problem with your product in the context of PLG, it's very useful. Okay. And then, so that's for yourself, but then for your team, how do you kind of help them understand more around the lines of like, how can we scale this self-serve business and build up some of those abilities? Obviously, it's kind of a more general question, but I'm wondering like sometimes whenever we ask this question, some founders are like, you know what? There is, we get everybody to do support one day a month for this reason, because it's like, you know, they're going to learn a lot of these issues and problems. So curious if you do, maybe it's any rituals or Maybe it's different resources or it's just like you just recommend, okay, just talk to other people and do the same thing on your site. Curious what you found has worked best to kind of scale up your team on this level. Yeah. I think one of the most important things, even if it's internal, is make sure that when we do make decisions, it involves cross-functional groups. Because when you think about it purely from the perspective of just your own maybe domain, you can potentially be a little tunnel vision, which is understandable. That's what you focus on. 
But if you're in a cross-functional group and we have a, essentially a cross-functional self-service team that operates today, it's really instructive because somebody on who's responsible for billing infrastructure can help somebody on the customer success team with, oh, by the way, you may want to think about X, right? Because here's the implication that's going to occur with this change in billing infrastructure. And that's, I think, been incredibly useful for how we disseminate internal knowledge within. It doesn't solve the problem that you highlighted, which is getting external perspectives and some of it has come about through external conferencing, not necessarily product-led specific things, but conferences in which they go and talk. For example, our the leader of our documentation team was in Europe earlier last week at an API conference. And again, it was very specific to a, a new specification, but part of the value of that is, we were talking earlier this morning, she's writing up multiple learnings for different parts of the R&D team, right? So even if the R&D team wasn't there, it's the ability to disseminate that information, not just for herself, but for other parts of the organization. And so we're, t we're trying to do more of that. We encourage, we have a program dedicated to individual learning where there's budget allocated to each group where you can go off and understand how do you better yourself professionally and that can be whether you want to be a leader, it can be around PLG, what have you. And so there are systematic ways to broaden domain knowledge within the org. It's, it's on us to go to go execute it. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm happy you mentioned the like cross-functional kind of like focus on some of those things too, because um, that's also like what we noticed whenever like helping companies become more product-led and stuff like that too, is we started off like with more of the consultants kind of approach, which is very similar to what you mentioned at the beginning, where it's like, okay, it's one person siloed thinking about like, hey, this issue. And like, sometimes you do come up with great ideas, but a lot of times it's like, oh, you're missing Sally's perspective <laughs> from sales or something like that. It's like, because you didn't involve everybody in this, you're only getting like 20% of a potential solution and you're only seeing like what you see. So yeah, absolutely. 100%. If you can do anything like that cross-functionally, you're going to get there way faster. And it does sometimes feel like a bit slower when you do it, but then the end result is usually like 10 times better. So love that. Now to kind of finally wrap up, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Sure. So Cloudinary, visit our website, C-L-O-U-D-I-N-A-R-Y.com. Gives you an indicator of what we're up to and you can find me on LinkedIn. Pretty straightforward. Happy to always chat about all things PLG and self-service and developers, marketing as well. So no problems connecting either way. Cool. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on, Sentai. This is a blast. Thanks a lot, Wes. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, we will definitely create more content just like this episode. <laughs> and if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.